If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Known as Darwin's Bulldog, Thomas Henry Huxley fought a tireless battle against the opponents of evolutionary theory. His grandson, Julian, lived among the animals of London Zoo and made nature documentaries with the young David Attenborough. Alison Bashford is the author of a book on the Huxley family, An Intimate History of Evolution. The book has been shortlisted for the Cundall History Prize, of which we are a media partner, and Ellie Cawthorn spoke to her to find out more about how this pioneering dynasty of scientists and thinkers shaped our view of nature across the 19th and 20th centuries. Thanks for joining me, Alison. Your book, An Intimate History of Evolution, is a family biography of sorts of the Huxleys, which focuses on a grandfather and a grandson, Thomas Henry Huxley and Julian Huxley. Could you introduce us to the Huxleys and tell us what drew you to writing about them? Thanks, Ellie. A pleasure to introduce you and listeners to the Huxleys. So the Huxleys were and are, in fact, a 19th and 20th century and 21st century dynasty, we might say, of scientific but also literary luminaries based in the UK. And the family rose, so to say, from fairly modest and even declining beginnings in the early 19th century when Thomas Henry Huxley was born, and he's the grandfather that I focus on. And people will know him mainly as uh, he's often called Darwin's bulldog. So Thomas Henry Huxley was a booming and really quite fierce Victorian figure who paraded and argued to the world the highly controversial theory of 
evolution by natural selection, which his good friend Charles Darwin came up with. And Darwin, as many people will know, was fairly retiring, cautious, worried about speaking about this controversy to the world, and he let and even asked his good friend Thomas Henry Huxley to do so. And so that's why Huxley is often known as Darwin's bulldog. And he was a paleontologist, a natural historian, trained actually as an apprentice doctor and taught himself by night, by candlelight, this great learning. He really came from quite humble backgrounds and he wanted always to parent a dynasty of scientists and he did so. And Julian Huxley was one of his many eminent grandsons, but the one that I focus on the most, who was a naturalist like his grandfather. And he took up positions like the first director general of UNESCO. Earlier, he directed the London Zoo. Mainly, he was a great communicator of science. And I focus on these two, the grandfather and the grandson, because they were so similar in many ways. They were both naturalists, They were both biological scientists, life scientists. They both really wanted to communicate to the world, not just to their learned colleagues, the theory of evolution by natural selection. And as well as a family biography, it's really a kind of intellectual biography of changing ideas about science in Britain over the time that the Huxleys lived, as well as evolution. What kind of other questions were they asking about the world? When you open the door to evolution, a lot of other questions emerge, don't they? Yes, and they would say the world and everything and the universe emerges, they would say. I call them the trustees of evolution. And that was actually a term that Julian Huxley used for humankind. He would say humanity is the trustee of evolution because we are the only species who can understand the theory of evolution by natural selection, everything in the planet, everything in the universe is touched by it, shaped by it. But by happenstance, humans are the only species, he said, who can understand it. So he called humanity trustees of evolution. And I use that phrase for the family itself because the family takes on this responsibility to explain evolution by natural selection. But evolution really touched everything, as did life scientists or what we now call biological sciences in the 19th century when Thomas Henry Huxley was learning his science or teaching himself, really, His milieu, along with Darwin, along with all this incredible scientific naturalist, they call themselves, would understand geology, they would understand all kinds of species, they were entirely taken up with the question of what they called transmutation. How might species, in fact, do species change over time? They're in the great controversy with Genesis, which has species that are fixed, you know, from creation. And so really evolution touched everything. But what what really drew me to this family is that they were on the one hand scientific, on the other hand, a great family of science communicators. And one might want to think of them as antecedents to David Attenborough. Mm. You know, through all the media available to them for Thomas Henry in the 19th century, writing textbooks, published lectures, highly well-attended, energetic lectures that he gave himself to his grandson, Julian, in the 20th century, certainly writing and books of all descriptions, early radio, 
early television, even early films Julian Huxley used to explain uh, the life sciences. And he even won an Oscar in the 1930s for a very early natural history film. And the connection with David Attenborough is not just a comparative one. It's, in fact, David Attenborough is part of this story because it turns out, when I was researching this book and, in fact, sent off some letters to Attenborough, which he very kindly replied to with a great deal of information and assistance, Attenborough's first programs, he was behind the camera as a producer of natural history television and film. And who was in front of the camera? Who was he producing? But in fact, the science communicator, Julian Huxley. I think that that's something that's so fascinating about the book is that it takes us from this Victorian age, as you say, when evolution itself was under debate, right up until this television age. And it seems like a completely different world. I wonder if we could start back at that Victorian age and talk a bit more about Thomas Henry Huxley. You use a great phrase about him. You say Thomas Henry Huxley's character booms through the records. So he was a big personality then. He was a huge personality, which as a writer and a family biographer and a historian is a delight. We all want big personalities to work with. When he booms through his own writing, he was a beautiful, beautiful writer, as so many scientists were in that era. You know, it's a world when scientists were poets and writers at the same time. It's a lost world in that regard in so many ways. And Thomas Henry Huxley was a great writer, constantly busy, constantly working, constantly publishing and communicating. And he was, I often use the word fierce, which he was. He loved an argument. He sought them. He won them almost always. And that's why when his good friend Charles Darwin essentially asked him to speak to the world about this theory the evolution by natural selection, Thomas Henry Huxley knew it was going to be a battle and he loved a battle. He was one of those fractious, articulate, fierce people who loved public battles and he absolutely took that to the world, found the battles and won them. At the same time, in writing what I call an intimate history of evolution, I wanted to write about these people's interiors and their family lives and how they thought about their very selves. And Thomas Henry Huxley was fierce to the world and fond and delightful and soft and even emotional, I think he would say, to his family, but also to his circle of scientific friends. So there was this other side to him that really took me by surprise when I was working my way through the records. And as someone who's written in and around 19th century scientists for many years now, one of the things I learned in writing this book was how that caricature of Victorian masculinity that we all have received didn't fit what I was receiving at all. What I learned in this intimate history of evolution was the way in which this tight circle of friends, you know, the really leading scientists of the mid-19th century were close is an understatement. They were, they used the word love to one another constantly and they followed each other's families 
when there was a death in the family, a birth in the family, a marriage in the family, this wide and incredibly significant circle of scientists were writing to one another in very, very close and affectionate terms where even when they were on the opposing sides of a scientific debate or, more difficult really, uh, political debates, this was a highly politicised group, they would say to one another, we are able to be on both sides of this argument and I still love you, my friend, they would write to one another. So I learned that that caricature of Victorian repressed masculinity didn't fit this circle at all. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And something that you write about that affected Thomas Henry and his grandson, Julian, are struggles with mental health. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how that impacted the Huxley family. Yes, it impacted them very widely and intergenerationally. And I do want to say it was one of the more interesting things about choosing this particular family. They suffered terribly from uh, paralysing, deeply paralysing depressions. And in saying so, I'm not disclosing anything that the Huxley families haven't said about themselves. And so I was a have been able to research and write something that they themselves were quite upfront and open and quite impressively so about to the public. It's in their memoirs, it's in their published poetry, it's in their published letters to one another. So the family, both before Thomas Henry in, in the 19th century and with Thomas Henry himself, but lasting all the way down to Julian Huxley's 20th century generation, suffered very, very severely from what they often called melancholia, carrying forward a 19th century term that their grandfather had used, which was a depression and possibly a, a manic depression although Julian Huxley himself never used that term. But it saw Julian Huxley in the 20th century inside institutions of all kinds for up to six months at a time, so paralysed with deep, deep depression that he can barely get out of bed, barely write. This amazing scientific communicator at times could barely speak two words together. But one of the interesting things for me was that the family knew this condition was inherited intergenerationally. And that alone is interesting. We know that now. But when you put that alongside the intellectual work of the Huxleys as scientists, this is a dynasty for whom not just evolution but inheritance 
of characters, as they call them, one generation to another, is not just family intimate interior business, but is the actual intellectual scientific business of the family. And so that awareness and very difficult experience of inherited mental ill health is something that they both wrote about experientially, so to say, as wonderful writers and communicators, but also actually thought about as a natural scientist of genetics, of Mendelian inheritance, and of evolution by natural selection. So for me, approaching the very large topic of an intimate history of evolution, that kind of double duty so to say that mental ill health did both as something that troubled the family intergenerationally and as something that they thought about and researched and wrote about inside the emerging science of inheritance genetics uh, gave me a lot to work with. So your book focuses mainly on Thomas Henry Huxley and Julian Huxley, but I think there are many, many other notable members of this family. I wonder if you could do as a quick roll call of other Huxleys and what they contributed to thought and science. Yes, indeed. So this really is a dynasty of extraordinary scientists and writers. So people will know, of course, Aldous Huxley, probably still the best-known Huxley, the great author of Brave New World and many other classics of science fiction. And he was Julian Huxley's younger brother, Um, Julian Huxley, his half-brother, was Andrew Huxley, another Nobel uh, laureate in the family, president of the Royal Society and also Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. There's a sequence of presidents of the Royal Society, starting with Thomas Henry Huxley himself and then a grandson, Andrew Huxley. One of the Huxleys who, I have to say, emerged as a writer as a great gift of the later generation was Julian Huxley's son, very little known, but I think should be very widely known, Francis Huxley, trained also as a natural scientist but turned into an anthropologist and a cultural anthropologist and a cultural anthropologist deeply trained in London-based psychoanalysis. And he wrote wonderful books about comparative religion, about psychoanalysis, about anthropology of tribes in the Amazon, which was his anthropological specialty. And in fact, Very few people know of Francis Huxley, but I think he's one of the greatest writers of them all. So there are little-known Huxleys, actually, in this dynasty that I think should be republished, frankly, and foregrounded. And the other Huxley that I'd like to mention is Julian and Aldous's mother, Julia Huxley. And she came herself from a very well-known family, the Arnold family, a literary family. And listeners will know of possibly Matthew Arnold, the great 19th century poet. So there's this dynasty of Victorian authors that Julia Arnold was descended from and she married into the Huxley family. And she started a school called the Priors Field School And that school, in fact, still exists and still flourishes. And she herself was a great educationist of girls. She was liberal, not quite radical, but certainly liberal. And she raised Julian and Aldous in this environment with the boarding school girls of great education, with great freedom, 
with a great kind of pastoral, very loving and by all accounts enjoyable childhood. And I think that Julia Huxley herself was a notable and certainly very influential figure in the family. So I wonder if you could take us on now to Julian Huxley. Can you introduce us to Julian, maybe tell us a bit more about those posts that he took on at London Zoo and UNESCO in particular? Yes, so Julian Huxley is probably not as well known as his beloved younger brother, Aldous Huxley. Julian was his older, eldest brother. They were very close throughout their lives. Julian is born at the end of the 19th century, crossed years with his grandfather for six or seven very important years in the 1890s. And whereas his grandfather taught himself as a miserable apprentice doctor in the in the East End and in the Docklands, you know, dispensing medicines by day miserably. He hated it. But by night, his grandfather would light the candle and teach himself ancient Greek and teach himself German literature and philosophy and teach himself natural sciences. His grandson, in a great story of upward mobility, went to Eton, then went to Oxford to Balliol College, where he read natural sciences at a time when evolution by natural selection was now taught as a matter of course. And then he got a job as a professor of natural sciences at King's College London, and he was on the path to be, you know, a reasonably good professor of natural sciences, and he crossed paths with the amazing author H.G. Wells, already incredibly famous. And H.G. Wells wanted to write a book which was to turn into the book The Science of Life, a book about everything, you know, evolution, life sciences, touches everything. But H.G. Wells knew that he, in fact, had been taught his own science by Thomas Henry Huxley, coincidentally, but he may as well have been taught by a dinosaur. You know, in between Mendelian genetics had happened, it was really old-fashioned science, and H.G. Wells knew he needed somebody to write with who was up to date. And he asked Julian Huxley, Professor of Natural Sciences at King's College London, if Julian would write this book with him. And Julian said, yes, Mr Wells, very, very famous person, I'll write this book with you. And H.G. Wells said, well, I'll only agree to do this with you if you give up your job and we take this on full time. And I can promise you that if we do a job, there will be enormous royalties. And lo and behold, Julian Huxley did just that. He gave up a professorship to author a book with H.G. Wells, which is the most phenomenal three-volume science of life, it's called. It's the very first ecology textbook. And it's a beautifully illustrated, they commissioned wonderful watercolours. If anybody wants to get a hold of beautiful secondhand copies, they're still around. It was widely published. It's a real treat. And it's quite true that they got enormous royalties together from this book. And that started Julian Huxley's life as a writer, as a communicator. H.G. Wells really taught him uh, the art of a pithy sentence and to really get to the point, the art of wonderful metaphor and the art of writing to readers who are clever but also want to be entertained. And so Julian Huxley really was apprenticed, actually, as a writer by H.G. Wells. And then he went on really to make most of his living through his long life, he died in 1975, as a science communicator, never took up another academic job, occasionally took up salaried posts, 
One was in the 1930s as the secretary, as it was called, of London Zoo in Regent's Park, where he and his family lived inside the zoo. And there's wonderful records and accounts of after hours, you know, once all the visitors have gone and he and his wife and his two sons are able to climb into the cages and wander around the zoo and sleep in the zoo. That was one post that he had into the war years when the zoo itself is bombed. With many of the keepers, they have to kill the toxic snakes and venomous creatures lest they all escape. And they had to remove many of the dangerous animals to Whipsnade Zoo, lest a bomb happen and the animals be roaming all over London. So really incredible accounts of London in the war years, in this strange zone of the zoo. And then after the war, Julian Huxley became the first Director General of UNESCO, the United Nations Science and Cultural Organisations. And that was a short-lived but very important and eminent position. Julian Huxley was, you know, both a wonderful and tricky character to work with because he had 20 ideas a minute, 20 ideas a second, and he wanted them all done yesterday. And in a way, as a leader of an institution, he was a wonderful ideas person, but not a great manager of people. So he had a short-lived term with UNESCO, and that was really his last salaried post, and he made his living making films, and doing natural history programs, making natural history films for schools and writing lots of books and getting lots of royalties from them and actually editing and working from a lot of his famous grandfathers. So it's this long 20th century life that Julian Huxley represented. Something that I do want to ask you about in terms of Julian is eugenics. Where does that come into his story? Yes, eugenics is both central to the Huxley story and a very difficult part of it for both obvious and not so obvious reasons. A mistake that's often made is that everybody will know that eugenics is connected to Darwin's idea of artificial selection. And so people and his cousin, distant cousin in the family, Galton, wondering about the possibility of speeding up and, so to say, and working deliberately on artificial selection to what they understand to be improving humankind and humankind's future. Thomas Henry Huxley himself, who's often connected to eugenics because he's connected to Darwin, in fact and in truth wondered and had a very large question mark about this strange idea of improving humankind. Thomas Henry Huxley himself was not so taken with the idea and is on record as that, even though he's often very connected and I think mistakenly to it because of his connection to Darwin. Julian, however, this 20th century figure, was as connected to eugenics as it was possible to be to the extent that he was president of the London-based Eugenics Education Society. Not only that, Julian Huxley was president after the Second World War, after eugenics had the terrible reputation, quite rightly, terribly so, of connection with Nazis and the Holocaust and the final solution and so forth in, in Nazi Germany. Julian Huxley, though, is a very complicated eugenicist, on the one hand, he was president of the society. He always understood eugenics to be progressive. He was a left-wing politician. He understood and aimed for an idea that humankind can 
be improved and improve itself in a way that will better everybody. Now, how that fits with eugenics is a very, very difficult thing to explain. But that's certainly Julian Huxley's own idea of eugenics. The other very difficult thing to reconcile, and this needs a kind of a a read of this book and other books on eugenics, is that Julian Huxley was able to be one of the 20th century's more eminent and prominent anti-racists an anti-racist and president of the eugenics at the same time. And how those two things can sit together is another reason why I really wanted to probe into the Huxleys in particular, because it wasn't an ordinary story of eugenics and racism that we're talking about. It's a much more complicated story that needs great explanation about how this dynasty of scientists could be both president of the eugenic society and, for example, as director general of UNESCO, really activist around anti-racism. Julian Huxley is trying to educate the world against Nazi ideas about differences between so-called races. So Julian Huxley is trying to undo that idea. But then as soon as the war ends, he's working with the eugenic society to try and improve what he understands to be the whole species of humankind. So reconciling these things is a very, very difficult thing to do and explaining them is something I'm trying to do in the book itself. And I guess for you it offers up a really, really intriguing subject for your biography to try and get into the mindset of. So obviously the Huxleys were great scientific thinkers, but in delving into these big questions about the world and the universe, it also took them to more spiritual questions as well. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, indeed. What is very interesting about the Huxley family is that they were a family of agnostics, capital A. And in fact, the very term agnostic is important because Thomas Henry Huxley coins the term. We don't know, we have no way of knowing the possibility of an afterlife, the possibility of God, he would say. And this is something that all of the Huxleys carry forward very deeply in a dynasty of scientific naturalists. Nature itself carries the great truth, they would say, and we can never know of God, they would argue. And so the very term agnostic is one of the many great influences of the Huxley family, a family of scientists, a family of agnostics. But just because they're agnostic does not mean this is a family of illiterate, so to say, religious people. Thomas Henry Huxley made a study of the Old Testament. Actually, after retirement, he sat with especially the Old Testament day after day as a very, very learned scholar of religion. Um, So they were deeply interested, deeply learned and deeply agnostic as philosophers and thinkers. And so I think that this is something that I was able to write about as carrying through the 19th and 20th century as well. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. In general, by looking at Julian and his grandfather, T.H. Huxley, what does it tell us about changing ideas about the natural sciences over the Victorian era in the 20th century? Yes, and I wanted to write about Thomas Henry Huxley and his grandson Julian together precisely because my aim in this book was to write a big story about the 19th and 20th century 
together right across the two centuries from the age of sail to the space age. And I wanted to anchor that big two-century story through something that I could keep hold of. And this Huxley dynasty was that, you know. And I write about the two of them together in my own mind as a writer. I, I For a long time, I thought of them as one very long-lived man <laughs> from 1825 to 1975, these wonderful set of years that could get me right over the 19th, 20th century. And I ended up declaring in the book, I think somewhere in the introduction, how useful it was to me to think of them as one very long-lived man because they were so similar. They got me from a world before the idea of evolution by natural selection in 1825 when Charles Darwin himself hasn't really settled on the idea right up to 1975 when the idea of evolution by natural selection is well known, is still highly controversial, but controversial in a different way, where the science-religion controversy is still in existence now, of course, but where most life scientists had fully accepted and developed the idea. So I was able to tell the story from a world when most natural scientists, if we think of the Science Museum in London, were busy classifying dinosaurs and fossils and trying to find links between dinosaurs and birds, that wasn't even clear yet, where the very idea of transmutation, that species might change, was still a highly controversial when some scientists still imagined the world as 6,000 years old only, according to Genesis, to a world that just suddenly gets, you know, year by year, the world gets older and older in the world of natural scientists. So, but by the time Julian Huxley is born, it's already millions of years old. By the time he's finished his degree in Oxford, it's billions of years old. By the time he's writing The Science of Life, it's more than billions of years old. And so it's this two centuries when natural scientists and geological scientists themselves are rapid fire changing the very idea of time, the very idea of the age of the earth. It's a mind-blowing phenomenon. The historian of geology, Martin Rudwick, talks about it as an era when the limits of time itself are burst. And so I really wanted to capture these two centuries when the very idea of the age of the earth, the very idea of time, changes from 6,000 years to billions of years. And it does so through the work of the fossil hunters in the 19th century and in the 20th century, this radical new idea of ecology starts to emerge. So I was able to put that long history of natural sciences from the kind of classificatory agenda to the ecological agenda of the 20th century. What is the relationship between species and food and space and over generations that happens in the 20th century and able to put that long natural history story together? That was Alison Bashford. Her book is An Intimate History of Evolution, The Story of the Huxley Family. The book is shortlisted for the Condor History Prize, of which we are a media partner. 
we'll be speaking to other shortlisted authors in the coming weeks, so look out for that. And you can find more interviews with shortlisted authors on our website at historyextra.com forward slash Kundle, or find out more about the prize at kundleprize.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.